There we go. There we go. All right. <laughs> So, welcome to the Gentleman's Book Club. This is episode one, and uh, we're talking about the Communist Manifesto, uh, 1846, Karl Marx and uh, Frederick Engels. Everybody's read over the content. Mm-hmm. we got notes. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, this is an informative book club-esque podcast where, um, you know, we, we, we all decide on a piece of literature or art or whatever it is. We uh, go over it, examine everything, and uh, bring it back together in three... Three grown men just uh, trying to educate each other, educate ourselves, and uh, holding each other accountable. And so this is if you want to read along and follow with us and take notes and uh, and be a part of the book club with us, then you're welcome to do that. If you'd rather just listen and hear our thoughts and opinions, kind of get the, uh, what are they, quick notes? <laughs> quick notes of stuff like that? Yeah, well, spark notes, that's what it was. Spark notes, yeah. That was always the easy way out in school. Like I didn't have a, I didn't, I, I didn't get to read, you know, this, this quick enough. Where's the spark notes on it? Yeah. Speaking now, of which, you can just listen to podcasts for an hour. <laughs> these guys will tell you, or yeah. <laughs> or you might just be worse off than when you got here. <laughs> and, and I don't know. We'll figure that out. Probably be worse off. Speaking of spark notes, I don't know if either of you came across the spark notes on the Communist Manifesto, but they're as long as the book. So <laughs> you might as well just read the book. I read the book twice and by red um you know you you can find it on spotify and it's 39 chapters it takes you it's about two minutes per chapter you know you take you listen to it like three times in one day and uh as i'm going over it uh you know keep trying to take notes and everything and think about oh what what do we uh where do we start with it and so I, I go to google and i think okay well now that i'm done reading it and even though i've collected all my thoughts and my opinions i need to find what or what I type in understanding the communist manifesto yeah, and the explanation so. is longer than the book. And I'm like, yeah. wait, I think like you were saying, Mason, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you had your thoughts and opinions on it before we got the show started. You were saying that, uh, basically it's just a rant and, you know, I never thought yeah. about that. I, people, it, it's been a concept that I've heard growing up, the communist manifesto, the communist manifesto. I've never taken the time to read it, to consider it or anything. And now I've read it three times in the past week. And it resonates with me and it means a lot to me. And really all that is, is it's just a concept. But the concept of the entire manifesto, all this from 1846, man, it was really just a rant of somebody who was in a certain class in society. It wasn't from the 1% of the bourgeois. It wasn't from, you know, the complete uh, downtrod of a proletariat. It was somewhere in between where I think we lie, where we're trying to decide, do we want to be, do we want to do we gain anything from all being on the same playing field or do we want to that, that kind of American dream where you work hard for what you do and so you should be able to achieve more, but then by doing so, it leaves everyone else on the back end. Um, and then some people just need help. Some people do need that. You know, they can't pull themselves out of shit and they can't, they can't do it on their own. And so they need help. But then that, you know, if everybody's on the same playing field, then you're kind of, you're kind of dragging behind or somebody else is dragging behind while you're trying to make progress and you spin your wheels and you're like, this is never going to work. This this whole idea is just fun to talk about in theory. It's never going to work. Yeah. So, so the, the first thing, the first thing that I noticed about it is I've never really studied Marxism. So this is my introduction to Marxism. And the first thing that I would say is it's not a good introduction to Marxism. I, I read the book. I finished it. Um, I think Tuesday or Wednesday, it's Saturday now. So, so since then 
I, I made a bunch of notes while I was reading it to go back and revisit things. And then I started doing more digging into it. So most of my most of my worldview around Marxism has been through the lens of free market advocates and economists. That's most of where where I've heard about it. The first thing that I would like to point out is it's not an introduction to Marxism because this is essentially this was a pamphlet and it was more of a call to arms, a long pamphlet, yeah. but it was a call to arms. And looking into it, it was commissioned by the Communist League, which was only a few hundred people in London at the time that were actually in the league. And I think I, I think the reason that a lot of stuff is is so convoluted about it and you hear this and that about it is because the Communist Manifesto doesn't tell you everything. And from what I found, there's a list of other books from Marx that really dive into these ideas. And that's why Marx was chosen, Marx and Engels were chosen to write it for the Communist League. They, they decided that they had the most collective uh, knowledge and, and writing on the subject. So a lot of this is, is a really, really summed up summary of it. So that said, all of my opinions from here, if you've read other Marxist work, keep in mind that I have not read it. So I'm basing this purely on the Communist Manifesto as, a, as its own writing work. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then the research that I did offshooting that. So That whole Bernie thing, taxing the rich and that 1%. They have the money for a reason. They're smart with their money. They're not going to just let somebody take it. And I think that by him doing that, you're screwing the middle class and the poor person even more because you're not going to get the money from the 1%. There's no way they're going to give that up. They have that money for a reason, and they know how to use it, and they know how to protect it. So by taxing them in order to get that tax money, you're getting it from the middle class. Like we see now, the taxes are so high and the middle and the, the 1% is just living it up. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying is that's they've, they've become that part of the bourgeoisie that in 1846 that he was talking about that one day, which like I said, looking at this piece of history from over 100 years ago and to how it relates to now is we're dealing with that as far as uh, we do have that, that 1%. How are you going to take away what they've worked so hard for? But really, it's when we were all trying to have a play, an even playing field for everybody, and somebody, that 1%, said, okay, now I want to gain more out of this, and I'm going to put some on the back end for me, and I'm going to protect me and everything. And it all comes down to that 1% of the individual thought rather than being for the working class and for everyone else. And like I said, that's where I draw a hard line, or I have a trouble drawing a hard line saying, is it a really good concept or is it a really good theory? Because I see both sides. I see how if I had that 1%, if I had all that money, like you can't come take it from me. But then again, like you're not helping anything. And it's just that I think there's a common misconception about wealth in this country, though. We, we there's a there's a common misconception about what the one percent owns. And and when we talk about the one percent, you hear it from a, a vast number of people. And with the way that wealth is defined and, and accumulated, I don't know that people talk about the same one percent. Jeff Bezos is a common one in today because he owns Amazon and, and he's frequently listed as one of the wealthiest men in the world right now. The problem is, is all his wealth is tied up in stocks. And I'm not saying that he's not rich and he can't live lavishly. He could sell a few shares of, of his Amazon. His divorce and, alone cost, what, $38 billion just well, to get it a didn't, divorce? it didn't cost that. So that's the thing is... is or that's what it ended yeah, up being when, for her in the when separation. You, when you look at stocks, you don't have $30 billion of stock sitting there. One, it's illegal to dump shares for, for a reason. And the reason it's illegal is because if you start dumping shares, by the time you sell off your last share, the cost the, of, of that people are willing to pay for that share has diminished 
significantly and you will devalue the stock. You don't actually have $300 billion of stock sitting there that you can just liquidate right out into the market and end up with $300 billion in cash. Yeah, it's all in motion. They're just hoping it's coming back around before somebody yeah. else gets their they, hands in they it. Sell, they sell it here and there. They get dividends. He's, he probably takes a salary as a CEO. Like He lives lavishly. He is in the 1% probably in, in salary and income. But the vast amount of his wealth isn't transferable back to the people. You can't just tax three hundred billion dollars of stock because he doesn't have he doesn't have ten percent of that in in wealth. I would assume most people don't. Most people that and and I, I there's a there's a really interesting topic about new new money and old money in the billionaire community because there are there's old money in the you take like the Rockefellers and stuff where the billions are in the family. And each individual doesn't technically, there's trust and things where all this money sits and they don't have to work. And that that's a big thing. Um, not that I, I don't necessarily disagree with Nathan, but a, a big thing that people have an issue with, with this vast amount of wealth collection is, is ev- even in stocks, you know, like I said, the dividends and being able to sell those shares here and there to make extra ends meet if you, if you're not making it through the salary, I say ends meet, not like they're, you know, struggling to pay for food, but when you have four mansions and you want to buy another one, quote unquote, making ends meet. Well, it's all relative. You (laughs) know, what, what Um, is relative in your life is the same as your neighbor's. But, but inheritance is a big thing that the communist manifesto talks about is, is abolishing inheritance. They wanted to abolish that because they don't want you to be able to inherit and stay wealthy. That's, there's a bunch of other things in the communist manifesto that I, I think are, I have, I have a lot of issues. For when you as the individual have stopped making a contribution uh, contribution to yeah. it doesn't go down to to your children like you said for them to leech off the community and mm-hmm. piggyback off what you've done the concept is that when they're when that individual ends their flow into the financial community it stops too now i i don't agree with a lot of a lot of the practices i also i don't know a whole lot about what was going on i know it was the industrial revolution you know is, is where the the bourgeois and the bourgeois the too which I don't understand. It, I don't it understand means the how, middle class yeah. and the definition that I got from it. It's so the, I don't understand why he's so against the middle class, but well, I don't know what the bourgeois was yeah. back then. So I think what right. It's it, talking about relativity. It's yeah. hard to understand. We know what that means to us now, but was that the middle class back then? And two, well, on this, let's just get what the 0. 0.1%, 1%, 5%, and 10% actually make in relative means of because when we say one percent the one percent of the population i mean it's a lot of money to me but in relative things like we're thinking billionaires are the one percent but just to get into the one percent you need to make over 700 according to the website investopedia.com that i'm on you need to make seven hundred thirty seven thousand six hundred ninety seven to be considered that one percent to be considered that one percent now that point one percent is two million eight hundred eighty or 808,000. Yeah. So when we say 1%, um, you're saying in theory, the actual number that's applied to the 1% is way less than whenever we say 1%. We're thinking of just rich people in We're general, the grand masses of people who make more than us. But those those are the 0.1% of the 0.1% yeah. that are making that. The 10% of the population is, to me, it kind of seems like the majority because if you have certain college degrees and... It, the ten percent is one hundred fifty thousand. So if you have an income of one hundred fifty thousand, you're part of the ten percent of the group. Yeah. And to me, that is what he's so against is not just the one percent, but also the ten percent 
the the bourgeoisie to me is the middle class. It's the ten percent and up. So I think on on the bourgeois thing, from my understanding of the history, because uh, and and he says this in in the first chapter talking about the bourgeois. He and and or is it the first chapter or was it the second when he starts talking about socialism? He talks about how a lot of this stuff comes from French. The, yeah. the French, a lot of these socialist concepts that were that were coming into Germany and into England were were from French concepts, and that's what he was elaborating on. So obviously, you can tell by the the sound of it if you're a native English speaker and you speak Western languages, bourgeois, aristocracy, and proletariat are French words. Right. And for a minute, it took me forever to under like I started off going to read the book. <laughs> So it starts off the bourgeoisie, and I'm like, well, let me look this word up because I have no clue what this is. The the strict definition that you get, or I, I say strict, the more strict definition that you get is it's French for middle class, essentially. What happened is the French Revolution, the middle class essentially overthrew the aristocracy, which was which was a feudal system. So the aristocracy wasn't really working people, and and the property that they owned, they really owned through through lords and kingships, right? Nobles and stuff that the the bourgeoisie and the middle class was kind of somewhere in in the the working and owned a little bit of property, but they weren't they weren't the ones making the laws and the rules. They overthrew that, right? And he's saying that the bourgeoisie overthrew the aristocracy and became the property owners. So he's typically referring to the 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 bourgeois as property owners, which is why and and that's that's the big thing about the communist manifesto is abolishing private property. Private property. Yeah. That's one of the things I love how it see I can hear it in my head the way the guy read it. If, whoever I need to f- go back and give credit to uh, the author that read for um for Spotify whatever, you know, uh, edition that was. Um he says you're concerned about uh that we're trying to take your private property because 9 tenths of the property is is public property anyways. One tenth or the one percent is owned privately, and he's like, "You're worried we're taking that away." And then it says, "Precisely that." <laughs> Karl Marx says that's what we're talking about. Yes, making so that private property on the individual is not something you can claim capital on and keep building on for you as an individual. Which, like you said, I guess in theory would would stop you, you know, inheriting something down to like lower generations or something. So when you as the individual cease to exist, your capital and claims stop too, because it doesn't matter anything to the society, your public or your property now becomes public. You're dead instead of inheriting down and in, in generating more income and capital for the next generation down, you're doing it for the masses instead of one family. You know, your property goes back to the to the public. And so is that saying that you don't own any property after you're you're dead or you don't own any property, period? I don't understand how how do public like even so housing. Let's talk about just owning a home in a communist society, owning a home or are you just renting or is it housing It's given? It's provided by the community. Provided. So there's also no free trade and free selling, right? No. So not in the way that it's been implemented. And from what I read, and that's that's a, another thing. That's a big reason that I wanted to read it is because I, I frequently hear people say, well, it's never it's never been truly implemented. And reading it, like, that sounds an awful lot like people that tried to implement so it and then it went awry. Because- so my question <laughs> is, is where even the, even the subject about, you know, no free trade and no free selling, let's say everyone's given a phone, right? You are issued a phone. But you don't get to pick whether it's Apple, Samsung, or whatever, making you more. Uh, well, there wouldn't be Apple, Samsung. There or wouldn't whatever. be. There, there would just be a yeah. phone. Is that the concept? Okay. <clears throat> that that's that's the implementation. Interestingly enough, and I, this is the one thing that I thought about afterwards that I was like, it's the one note that I forgot to to mark what page it was. He says something 
on on one page, which hopefully one of y'all had it marked, where he says that his intentions are not to hurt the artisan and the the lowly peasant. He's specifically talking about the factories. And something that, that I've been reading about Marxism is that a big thing that he had an issue with was that factory life became oppressive. It took away individuality. Exactly. Um, to where the child or the spouse of the worker, your life is different. Your family unit is different than that of the bourgeoisie because what it means for you to be alive. But when you have to get up and go to work at these factories to keep maintaining products and, and mass you know goods for the for everybody, these things that, that you don't need. I think that's communism is such a, as far as I've, I've always grown up been led to believe that it was a bad thing. And here's the thing. I think that right now where I'm at in life, understanding it is I'm not all for it, but I think that where from what I'm gaining is that it's the concept that instead of creating all these things like different, different types of phones and different demand for, this higher class of like, you know, I want to pay more for that phone or more for the taking away all the nonsense and taking, so we don't have to make a factory to make this different iPhone. Everyone just goes to work at the one factory to make the one phone, you know, what have you. And then you all get to go home and spend time with your family. And I think that it was, it's trying to get everyone to understand like on a human basis, instead of who's better than this, who's better than that. What if we all just help each other exist as a species? And then we can all spend the same amount of time at work and doing, and you don't have to worry about whose house is bigger or better. You can spend more time on you as the individual and you as a family unit. And I know that sucks because we want to, we want to be able to do this thing. We want to be able to have a podcast and say a thing, but with communism, you wouldn't have that because that individuality feels stripped as you just producing something for the society. So you can all go on. Ironically, I, I like the way you describe it because to me, you're kind of preaching the point, but I, I, ironically, his goal is to increase individuality, which I think it does the exact opposite. I would arc because because like like that com. I wish I knew what page that was so that I could read the whole thing in context because he makes a point about not wanting to hurt the artisan yeah. and the the peasant. I would argue that removing and abolishing private property and giving that back to the community hurts the artisan because today in our society it's easier than ever to be an individual and to get your product. Out. There's so many random products on the internet now that people are making a living selling and they're they're happy because they get to do what they want to do and they don't have to amass millions of dollars they're getting to do what they want to do and i think that's beautiful right it's not you don't have to when you want to be a musician you don't have to go make it in hollywood or go to nashville and then be like oh have i made it yet have i made it are people listening to me can i make money no you can sit in your home and record things you can put it on the internet and then people and people who want to spend their money that they worked hard for if they want to help support you and your product and what you're putting out there it's accessible to everybody and you can do it and then people can pay you and you can you can fund your existence creating those things and to me that's the beauty of of capitalism that i don't understand why communists don't like for instance like i get what you're saying of we don't need all these phones but yet by having that competition and all these different companies building these phones that has made it to where you and me can sit in this room and make a good living just doing this right here. Yeah. And that's from the competition of continually and, building and let good it, Let it be no mistake. Like, as I describe this, it's just, it's all, it's all thoughts. Because like I said, you can travel down one avenue of it and start saying like, okay, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I, I'm not saying I'm an advocate for it because. No, there's some stuff where I do agree. Like I would no, love yeah. to wake up in the morning, go hunt. 
afternoon go fish like he says and then smoke and drink brandy in the evening and discuss politics like i would love to do that right. and not have to deal with it's what we're trying to do yeah not, <laughs> and not have to work but i know the reality of stuff is that i have to work you have and to. i can't right. just not unless i just get blessed and lucky to maybe this will go shoot up in the air and I don't have to work anymore and I can make money off of this and this is my job. And it's everybody keep, you try to turn your hobbies into like to where you can make, you can fund your existence by doing things you love. And I think that we're in a time that can allow that. With communism, you couldn't do that. That's the thing. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it works that way. That's just not how it gets implemented. And there's a reason that three countries who've tried communism have completely gone to crap it's like the matrix um you know where the machines they went through six iterations of creating uh, an artificial synthetic life for humans because they're using humans as batteries and everything the war between the, mach- the man created the machines and the machines became sentient and then they figured out you know like so then they use humans as batteries and they've but what they're trying to do is they're trying to uh create a synthetic existence that will that will make the humans be comfortable in it and not question anything, right? And don't question, just just go with it. But the thing is, is they kept getting it wrong six different iterations because people kept waking. They're like, this is too perfect. And it was it was too perfect. And people, you gave them exactly what they wanted and they realized like, this is fake, this is false. So they had to reset and they go again. And so people are complaining, we want this, we want this, we want this. So then you go to a, a communist community and you said they tried it and it failed because when you give people what they want, and they're crying out for it, or you think you're trying to give them what they want, and they're like, this isn't it. It doesn't work. Never mind. (laughs) Not real. It doesn't translate. And you're like, okay, let's reset. If you try to force everybody into this perfect box, and then by the end, if you if you watch the whole Matrix movies, great films. If you <laughs> yeah, you can, you, the first one standalone, it tells a whole story in itself. But if you watch the, all of three of them together, by the end of it, it basically says that at the end, the machines ended up giving the people the choice. Like we will create an existence that we think they can handle, that the mind can process, and that they can accept. And then if they want the option to step out of it and and opt out, then they can, which would not be communism. You yeah. can opt out and step out. Yeah, you, if you, so, it just doesn't work for you um, anymore. I would like to. I'd like to go back to something too, though, that I wanted to to make a point about with what is generally today considered excess, because it a lot of people want to have this uh, almost two-sided view of products so so i want to talk about that with the phone analogy there's a there's an excessive number of phones on the market right now um so if a phone doesn't sell then it either gets cut the company's still viable but they cut the phone or the company goes under right if those companies aren't going under that means people are buying those phones which means that it's not unnecessary there is a necessity for the variation um, and, and that's my biggest argument to the excessiveness that uh, Bernie Sanders made a comment. I, I'd, I'd have to look up. Let me, let me restate that. I heard that Bernie Sanders made a comment <laughs> <laughs> about, um, about the number of deodorants in, in a grocery aisle. And my argument again, is I understand that it has to get produced and that material may get wasted because people aren't going to buy it. But the alternative is as we've seen with, with central planning. In, in centrally planned economies, this isn't just communism, but but in, in very heavily centrally planned economies, things get more gets wasted because because there's not a there's not a the state controls it. There's not anybody to say, hey, this isn't working. It just continues to to waste um, prices get set incentives get changed and people people hoard certain things that are 
unnecessary. There was a big pelt problem in the Soviet Union where where pelts were priced some absurd number, but then they were running out of like milk or something because the prices were set wrong. Even though there was an abundance of cows to produce milk, they there wasn't a reason to make the milk from the cows. Something like that. You you'd have to read it, but that that was the issue that they had. The Soviet Union at the in the sixties. 60s or 70s the the i can't remember the name of the organization that was you know part of the communist party that was setting prices had 24 million prices to set and they set every single price because everything was owned by the state and the only way that that's feasible is to let all 300 million people in take the united states all 300 million people make their own choice about what the price should be right well like you were saying those those companies okay let's say there's five different deodorant companies and you say uh, the argument about being necessity. You know, this is too much. There are five. We don't need five. I only ones. use one. It's like oh, okay. Well, the other ones will fall off. Yeah. If they can't, if they can't if keep up, they'll fall yeah. off. The, the deodorant's kind of a funny one because on the one hand, it's not really necessary to survival. Um, <laughs> right. Neither are phones. Yeah. 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 So, so a lot of know. that stuff's not necessary to survival per se. However, it increases the quality of life. For, I think every every most people agree that a stinky person is not pleasing to be around. Not pleasant, um, but you get used to it. After I mean, and, let's be honest. If you don't shower and everybody else doesn't shower, so you get used I'm, to the smell. I'm currently nurturing a broken hand, right? And a month ago, when I first got it, and I had this cast, this cast over the first day, two, three days, a week, it's the worst smelling thing ever. And I'm like, I can't get it far enough away from my face. Now, you know, four weeks later, and I'm like. Oh man, I either I've gotten used to it or the cell the smell is just dissipated yeah. in itself. And there's even a whole theory about how like you cannot wear deodorant for an entire month, you know, and you will stink for a little bit, but eventually all the chemicals in your pH balances will level out in your body and you will you won't not have a musk, but you won't reek. You yeah, know? I don't I don't wear I don't wear deodorants because yeah. well, my arm sweat. Yeah, my my, my armpits specifically, yeah. the places that, that generate the most smell don't sweat. Um, so I just I stick to colognes, I bathe, and I I am a huge advocate for fabric softener. That yeah. stuff, it's the I've I've seen people complain about fabric softener like that's something that big companies created. Like I don't care if they created it to to sell, it works. <laughs> my cl- my fresh sheets smell great for a week. <laughs> but see, it goes back down to like you're talking but, about just creating creating the company that makes dryer sheets and all the ones that they produce that are wasted and then go back out. Then it comes down to. Did we need those dryer sheets? No, but you needed jobs, and to me, that's what yeah, yeah. It create it creates jobs, and then it creates innovation because without those things, this is the thing about deodorant. Without without being able to try a new brand that you think, because generally, generally, most people don't start off trying to make something like some stuff is started out for profit. But I think that's I think there's a lot less things done in the free market for the sake of making money than there it is for the sake of innovation. And I think what we see is, is we see that when it's done specifically to make a profit, the reason that we think that's more prevalent is because it comes with more advertisement because your goal was to make something more profitable. That's advertising at work, which is part of the free market. But I think, I think that that's not an argument against capitalism, but that's going to happen in any system. That is human nature for things to get advertised. Advertisement's not really any different than political propaganda. It's just advertisement for your your political ideology. So that's not something that I think is going to go away without cap. And I do agree. I think there is a, a an overabundance of what we have, I th- but I think it boils down to individuality where you as a person 
have a choice if you want to buy that phone. Yeah. You as a person have a choice if you want to buy that big five-story house or that or that exotic boat or those nice cars and get yourself into a pickle to where you're like, crap, I have too much stuff. And instead yeah. of just being now like, I can't afford you it. know, I don't need this big house. I don't need this boat. I think that, that comes to individuality. Well, okay. So there it is. There's the grand scheme of things is that in the society that we have and without communism, you're allowed to make that choice. Yep. And you make that choice. If, if you want that bourgeois lifestyle, if you want to go get it, go get it. But if you don't want to, then you just need to be okay with it. And you just need to find out where you fall in line or where, what your place in life is. I want is. a boat. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I can't afford a boat. And I will never be. And then you start to question, you're like, do I need a boat? And then come by the end, you just never bought a boat. You really wanted one, but you talked yourself out of it because you're like, you know what? Don't need it. I'd rather have something else, put my money in something else. So um, to to tie that back to the book, though, I I had some points that I wanted to kind of like just go over. So because we've touched a lot about our opinions on communism as as an ideology. With hindsight, we've, we've been able to look back. So I, I wrote a couple of points that I, I wanted to make clear from my research around it, as well as just from reading the individual book. So the first point is because I hear this I hear this frequently on like message boards and stuff, not too much from publications, but on message boards specifically, I, I see people argue that communism and socialism are, are different. Um, they're not. So co- communism is socialism or rather a radical form of socialism it is a radical form of socialism that seeks to transfer all private property to the community as opposed to only abolishing some private property, specifically that of industry and production, which is what socialism typically seeks to do. Uh, so point number two that I, I gathered from reading this as well as doing some some other research, socialism is a spectrum, and I don't think this is talked about enough. Um, like most things, there should not be a two-sided view of the subject. It's not just, oh, they're a socialist. Oh, they're not a socialist. This is a socialist program. It's not socialism is a, is a very broad spectrum and looking at the history of around this time, because socialism was a new, new ish concept with communism. Um, you, you have to understand that there's, there's varying degrees of how much transfer of private property wanted to be brought in like it's socialism typically most forms revolved around just wanting to take the means of production and major things and move them into private hands or sorry public hands um point number three that i wanted to make uh life does not and will not exist without classes um marx pointed out that history of human life has mostly been a series of class struggles and i agree with that however I don't think that you will ever change that. That's not, there's, it's just not possible. And that's a, a few of my other points. Even in communism, there's somebody, there's someone who's going to be above yeah. you. And that person's going to get, whether it's income, which they said, uh, another a note that I made, all personal income, like a, a need for a paycheck will subsede. Like you won't need to be paid anymore because everything will be provided for you as you provide for your community. However, communities are very large, and exactly. they were very large in 1840. If someone's not receiving a paycheck who's above you, who's managing you, they're receiving some sort of extra enticement, and you want that. Now you've generated classes again. So uh, so, so I, I get into that in, in my next few points. So a, a common argument I see about communism and Marxism is that the state is supposed to slowly dismantle itself. Uh, so two things about that. 
uh, one, states and governments do not dismantle themselves. Once they're established, the goal of the government is to sustain itself. To it, maintain. It, it's, yeah, it's essentially, it's an organism of sorts. Uh, groups in general are. When you, when you group people together in the form of an idea, the idea becomes, it, it behaves like, an, like its own organism. It's not a club. That yeah. will fall apart if, like, it's an establishment. Yeah. All right. If you if if something um, isn't working, that piece will be removed and something will be put in that does work with it. Another thing about that is I don't I don't recall reading anything specifically in the Communist Manifesto that he suggests the state should slowly disassemble. No, and I didn't either. In oh. fact, he very clearly states that the state is responsible for several things. That's yeah. on on page page eighteen. Yeah, he lists out what most societies will have to do. Uh, point number five about about the class struggles is uh, a community is generally defined as a unified group of people. Uh, groups of people don't exist without a structure. If the community owns something, some set of rules must be placed on the use of that something. Someone then must decide how to enforce the rules. Someone must decide how to establish the rules, update the rules, define the rules, etc. The things that a government does... <laughs> So every community, this is, this is I think, a, a universal truth about humanity. Every community will always develop a government. <laughs> Go, going back to that, that governments don't dismantle themselves. It's, no, that's you not get, a thing. it's and a human thing to, a once you have power, you're not going to relinquish uh, it right. for nothing. Which means that governments and states do not develop a community, nor do they empower individuals or communities. Um, that is not their intended purpose. The purpose is to enforce the structure or or decide the structure. Go, going on that, uh, the ideas suggested to remove classes from human society, in my opinion, are not viable. Uh, I would argue that Western cap the Western capitalist system, in spite of the vast amount of social programs and central regulation and planning that have been created, that has been implemented in the United States and other European countries, have, has blurred the lines on classes and created a more fluid class system than the purest form of communist regime that's ever been tried. By that, I mean Marx's point was is he wanted the proletariat to overthrow the bourgeois and it become one singular class and and i have a fundamental issue with that whole notion because all that i think you do is is you've just overthrown the bourgeois which the bourgeois overthrew the aristocracy and now somebody has to determine the structure of the of the for the community and that's going to become its own class so the proletariats become become the people now in charge of of centrally planning the economy. There was one. There was one where it, uh, it, a chapter where it, it said almost exactly that the bourgeoisie will become the pro or the proletariat will work to become the bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie will yeah it, it comes back around yeah it's, yeah, it's a never ending cycle exactly I mean it's just you will fall in and out of classes into different structures and because you're middle class doesn't mean you'll always be middle class you can work up and you just when you've made it doesn't mean you're there you could fall and go back into the system when you make when you make the state when you put somebody in charge of centrally regulating and planning the economy you've just given them total power you you took it away from the market where you can vote with a dollar and you've made it to where you you have to vote democratically and then we've seen that once you elect a a primary leader over communist parties that typically is not how that ends up happening democracy is is usually not real so so i would i would actually argue that that western capitalism has blurred the lines of classes more than communism ever will the goal should not be to compress everything into one class so much as to blur the lines and and extend i would also argue that there's not I tried thinking about it, and I can't really define the classes here. It's common to point out the 1% and the 
and the 99. And I don't, I don't think that's fair though, because like we talked about, you know, how are you defining the wealth and then how is the wealth used? How is it distributed today? There's not a whole lot of people who's, who's uh, level of life. Now you can argue, you can argue that this is because of state intervention or because of free marketism. That's not really the issue here so much as communism, clear, total, 100% central regulation does not work. And in hindsight, Western capitalism with some amount of socialism, whether you think it's in spite of or not, has improved the life of everyone. And the poverty lines have gone up. Yeah, because the poor person here is relatively well off. Yeah, they have combustion engines in just about every country. And, that and, and the, the combustion engine alone, say what you will about how it impacts the, the environment, it raises people out of poverty. You can do so much more work with it. And thanks to thanks to several things, and, and again, I, I'm not going to argue whether or not there's some amount of room for social regulation and social programs, because this isn't really talking about, like I said, so, uh, socialism is a spectrum. So this isn't whether or not socialism on the on the lighter side is okay but more that communism as a radical form of socialism that seeks to 100 percent abolish private property is just not sustainable and it will always lead to oppression more oppression of people than anything well there are four current communist states in existence right now and that's china cuba laos and vietnam you know and we're wondering where we lie with them and they're looking at us for the answers and we're like Look, what you're doing is not working, obviously. That's why out of all the societies on the entire globe, only four in China is for the mass of the population as, you know, for, for the... China also... And they've had to open markets. their markets up. Humans, yeah. Got- yeah, well, they keep they keep opening up the market. They've been... All those countries have opened up their markets and they keep doing it. And and the argument is, as well, that that's an example that true communism has never been tried. I'm like, no, true communism was tried and it's not economically sustainable. Like I said, you cannot expect... You can't expect a thousand people even, which it probably wasn't even that much. You can't expect a thousand people to regulate and set 24 million prices. That is just absurd. There's no way that they can know what price this needs to be right now. Going all the way back to how it just doesn't work. Let's look at it this way. If you can't take like our society, you can't take what we have now and turn it into a communist society. You can't go backwards. You can't make it work. But if you give, let's say like Yemen right now, right? People in Yemen are in there. It's one of the worst situations in the world right now, right? All they want is some help and some structure. And if you told them, okay, we'll give it to you. We'll give you everything you need. All you got to do is work, right? You just got to work and we'll come in. We'll provide everything for you. At some point, they're going to do that, and they're going to be so thankful for it. And they're going to be like, oh, great, the communism. You've, you've given us a, a sense of purpose, and and you provided for us as a community. But then you're going to start creating classes, and then you're going to start getting greed, and then you're going to start wanting that little bit more. And then now where you've become – it was a communist state of uh, to help develop – um, underdeveloped societies or people, you know, people who need uh, a financial collapse and they, they need assistance. If you introduce communism to them, it's only going to work for a little bit until they start wanting, like you've, you've achieved the necessities to live. Now you want more and you're going to start generate. It's just not going to work. So, so Marks, Marx suggests that the only way to implement communism through that form is through a revolution. Revolutions require armies. Armies require leadership, which require and, and, and desensitize people, which is which is what happened with the Soviet Union. You they you know, they led a revolution. It was a civil war. He 
uprose the, the working class, but that there were leaders and generals and there's an overthrow. It's not just silly. That That's my, that's my biggest complaint about rioting is I'm like, no, no, no. Civil unrest makes sense when you need to overthrow a government. Stealing things and looting is not, is not a form of civil unrest that overthrows a government. That's not, it, it's, there's two, there's two distinct different things. Now, not, not saying that armies don't loot and sack cities throughout history i mean that that happens but that's that's an army an organized structure going in looting a city and then moving on to the next one because they're marching somewhere to cause destruction but that's the ideals of the individual the army has an idea of yeah they they went in there with a structure and a plan and then the individuals so what happens what happens when you when you raise an army of people and then overthrow a government who start? Who start? Who who maintains power? Yeah. Now who's in charge? Now the generals are in charge, and even if they're going to try and implement socialism, now now there's the structure is set up. Now again, I, I've heard the argument that it's supposed to dismantle itself over time. If you believe that the government's going to dismantle itself, you're you're sorely mistaken on human nature. For one, two, there's already now there's several classes because there's a military structure in place that overthrew the government, um, and I, I can't speak on this, but Nathan. Would you say that there's a form of class system in the military? I would assume so because oh, a general yeah. has a general has a certain amount of uh, pay and authority, and then there's there's well, colonels there a class and then there's system. lieutenants, and, and then and to me the military is a privates. perfect example of a, a socialist society in itself, and, and there and yet there is a class system. I mean, you have the lonely, the low private who does not make anything, and then you have the high general who's making about a hundred grand a year. And that's just off of the pay he's getting. That's not counting the perks that he might get just for being a general. I mean, he's got free health care. He's got free insurance. And, I mean, that in itself, I mean, he's very well off. And and the class difference between an officer and an NCO, I mean, there's just so much, so much there. I mean, an officer walks in the room everybody has to stand up and i mean yeah there's a there's a big class difference and and there's prime examples all over the world too of generals leading coups and taking over the country and mm-hmm. it's not good for the country it's, 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 i mean there's civil war all over the place with that if, if y'all know the history i don't know the history too well but from my understanding that's what napoleon did during the first french revolution is there was a bunch of civil unrest they killed a bunch of members of the aristocracy. It was a disorganized, chaotic mess, and Napoleon marched his army in and took over and became a dictator because he was like, "This can't just stay chaotic. I, I'm no, going to reestablish took power because he knew he could. Yeah, um, he kept it for Caesar a while. Caesar kind of did that, but I don't think there was a whole lot of civil unrest. I think he just marched Caesar on Rome. Caesar didn't do <laughs> just, that for the civil unrest. He, Caesar had an army behind him that yeah, loved him, and he said, "You know what?" Going. I'm gonna take over right. now, and this is where I'm. I'm yeah. gonna own Rome. wasn't Wasn't it family squabbles? A, the, he took the, his army and marched in and said, "Hey, oh, what are they called? The the, patri- the patricians? Yeah, yeah, the patrician you, class. There was a lot of inner. You want to look up a conflict. really complicated legal system? I highly recommend just just go down the Wikipedia rabbit hole of reading about Rome's political system because it is not as simple as just some some senators that were appointed. It is a very complicated republic. And, and yeah, I got lost. And I was like, man, there, there's a lot more to this than I thought there was. So I was like, I'll have to research this later. So pretty much once you're in power, you keep the power and there's no perfect system. But yeah. the most perfect system um, that we've been able to create is through capitalism. So, yeah, my, my closing statements would be would be this. Uh, so my primary issues with socialism as a whole is that 
central planning kills more people and causes more hardships that lead to worse oppression than that of a free market. Uh, to say that any political system is without flaws is obviously silly, and to argue that a utopia has never been properly properly implemented is axiomatic. So that's my biggest issue when people say, oh, com- real communism's never been tried. Well, real communism is a utopia, so it's obviously it's never we can't have a utopia and then my my final uh my final point to make would be and and y'all probably heard this and i will maintain this till i die life is suffering we're not going to get past that yeah i mean you know and and, and, (laughs) talking about closing statements you know I come back around because i i was concerned the whole time about what this all means to me and how you know, like we've said before, it's all relative to each of us as the individual that have different experiences financially and where our role in society is, you know, um, being a, a father and just a general role of, you know, basic labor and, you know, trade work, doing trees and everything else, mechanic work, whatever. And, and then doing all of these hobbies in the meantime to Nathan, uh, you know, who has served in, in a a integral piece of our uh, military and done things for our country and to fight for capitalism that he's so, you know, he, he agrees with so much. And look, when I came into it, I really had a different opinion on communism where I thought, look, I understand that it's really hard to grasp, but I think it might be better for everybody where I don't agree so much anymore. You're right. It will never work. And that's what this purpose is for. That's what yeah. the Gentleman's Book Club is for is for like, you know, look, if you had an idea on the concept we talk about it, and now by the end of this episode, and in an hour's time, I've completely changed my my manifestation of the concept and how, you're right, it doesn't work, and it's a good theory, and just if if you don't want to, if you don't want to give in to that, uh, into that, in the rigmarole and the, the process of it, you have the choice, you know, like Nathan said, you can, you have the choice to opt out. You don't have to have that boat. You don't have to have, you know, this or that. Like, it's it's all a choice, but you have that choice right now. Whereas with communism, you don't. And you will start to create a choice, and then it won't work, and it collapses. So, whereas the theory, like you said, true communism's never been achieved, it has. It just doesn't. Yeah. And I would like to point out that I've had to come to the same realization about anarchy and the utopia and and. How you just want to say, look, overthrow the government and then let yeah, nobody then do anything. But this, somebody... this could work. It's never been tried. And at some point you have to come to the realization that utopias have never been tried because they're utopia. Look at The Walking <laughs> Dead, for example. You know, like at, at this at the collapse of society, everything's, you know, all those classes, everything has gone away. Now you're just surviving, right? But what happens by the end of the show? You have clans. Someone had to rise up and someone started Somebody taking... Somebody took the power. Someone the took the power. Come man, about. because they couldn't all just get along. They said, look, like, all right, we it's the, the apocalypse. Now we can just work together to help each other live. They did and somebody wanted more. It just yeah. doesn't work. That's that's my closing statement. Um, Nathan, do you have anything that you want to add? Not really. I'm just uh, glad we were able to uh, yeah. win AJ over to the, <laughs> to, the, to the beautiful side of capitalism. I think, but- I think most – look, all right, guys. Most of these episodes is going to be like me coming in with an opposition <laughs> and then by the end going, all right, you know. Me, yeah, me and Mason talked about this, and it was like um, you are middle left, we feel like, and I'm middle right, and Mason's just – just I'm, out there, yeah. Because, like, well, no, I don't. I'm not on the spectrum. I. Oh, I argue that you're on the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like he's just against 
almost everything that yeah like like you goes you with me talking about a lot of these things but i i actually don't um i don't really like group think in general and i'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of the free market not necessarily and i don't like using words like capitalism and socialism because i typically refer to I'm typically referring to the economic systems. I don't like central planning, and I'm I'm if if you if you look these up, central planning versus free market. I'm I'm very against central planning, which is at the core of communism and socialism, and very pro free market, which is generally at the core of capitalism. If you if you define capitalism in that way, but a lot of people have a lot of people have trouble taking socialism away from central planning and taking capitalism away from free market and government, right? The, the abstraction of those two concepts is really difficult. So I, uh, I definitely am against group thinking systems. So I typically come out of the, the side where I'm not left or right politics. I'm not really pro the system as a whole. Like I said, I, I would say that I lean more towards anarchy in general. Well, you know, and that's, it comes back around to the conversation my wife and I were having all night basically is that there's just communication. You know, this is, you know, you have different opinions and everybody's so, so torn on left, right. And this, and they're, they're facts and and everybody's ready to gear up to like go to war. And it's like, look, why are you trying to combat each other? Just talk. Look, I've, I've come, we we came into this room. I had an agenda or, or so I thought, and it's completely changed. And it's just education through, and that's what this purpose is. That's what this book club is for. For anybody, if we didn't say that in the beginning, if we didn't, <laughs> if we didn't get our point across, that's what this is for. Is because we we want to take pieces of literature and pieces of history, and we want to uh, process them in our own sense and how they relate to us as an indiv- individual, us as a class, as a group, us as a, a family member, like a family structure. That you know, we all we're we're three guys that grew up together in the same town and 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 Arkansas and. And now it's come to this, you know, and it's just, it's further educating ourselves. And so that's our thoughts on the Communist Manifesto. Whether you're you're better or worse after hearing it, you're definitely <laughs> thinking. And that's the most important part. Yeah, we just, uh, the whole goal yeah. is to, uh, of this is to make you think. Yeah, generate conversation. And learn. Yeah, so uh, I'm Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Mason. And I'm Nathan. <laughs> and this is the Gentleman's Book Club. Thanks for listening.